Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage for today comes from Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. Listen to what God is saying to you. One day after Moses has become an adult, he went out among his people and he saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked around to make sure no one else was there. Then he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When Moses went out the next day, he saw two Hebrew men fighting with each other. Moses said to the one who had started the fight, why are you abusing your fellow Hebrew? He replied, who made you a boss or a judge over us? Are you planning to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid when he realized they obviously knew what I did. When Pharaoh heard about it, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses ran away from Pharaoh and settled down in the land of Midian. One day, Moses was sitting by a well. Now there was a Midianite priest who had seven daughters. The daughters came to draw water and fill the troughs so that their father's flock could drink. But some shepherds came along and rudely chased them away. Moses got up, rescued the women, and gave their flock water to drink. When they went back home to their father, Rel, he asked, How were you able to come back home so soon today? They replied, an Egyptian man rescued us from a bunch of shepherds. Afterward, he had helped us draw water to let the flock drink. Ruel said to his daughters, so where is he? Why did you leave this man? Invite him here to eat a meal with us. Moses agreed to come and live with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses as his wife. She gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom because he said, I've been an immigrant living in a foreign land. May God add a blessing to the hearing and understanding of this scripture. Good morning, Urban Village Church. My name is Emily McGinley, and I have the great joy of serving as the pastor here in this congregation and um, in ministry alongside so many of the folks that you have seen up front here and those who you don't often see up front, but who make the magic happen on Sunday morning and uh, from Monday through Saturday. So um, I'm just grateful to be among all of you and such as those. Um, and as we come together uh, to hear maybe what God has to say to us, let's, uh, let's join in prayer. God, we thank you for the gift of your word and that it is made new, um, that it can be likable um, and accessible to each one of us wherever we may find ourselves in life, in education, in status, and that you make yourself available to us through it and through one another. And so we ask that as we gather and reflect on this passage, that you would um, be present, that your spirit would move among us and 
clear away the clutter of our minds and our hearts and the things that have to be done um, so that we might uh, be present for your voice, um, that we might be open to be challenged by what you have to share to us, that we might be vulnerable enough to be comforted in the ways that bring healing and full restoration. So we pray all of this with gratitude together and in trust that you are at work within us in good ways and for good purposes. In the name of Jesus, amen. Over the, um, this past week, 11 individuals from all over the country gathered at my alma mater, McCormick Seminary, uh, just a few, uh, about a mile uh, north of here, um, to be, for three days to be part of a church planting cohort. And over this next year, they'll uh, come together monthly online to learn from the pastors and the staff of UVC um, to be equipped and guided and companioned in their journey toward creating inclusive communities where they are. In fact, for most of them, inclusive community was a significant reason why they had chosen to learn from Urban Village. They knew us either by reputation or relationship and wanted to learn from the insights that we had gained over the last years of planting. Now, early on in the program, people shared a little about what had moved them to do this crazy thing of church planting. And as they shared, I noticed that there was a kind of common thread in their stories. From Methodist to Baptist to Quaker to AME, for nearly every person at some point, there emerged a kind of longing for an inclusive faith community, whether it was that they had experienced exclusion or had seen others excluded or were just tired of abusive theology, each person in that cohort wants to create a space where people could bring their full selves, their full selves, and experience belonging. Now, if you were with us last week, you'd know that we're spending this month talking about what it is that makes for a meaningful life. And you would also know that among the pillars of, the, of what make for a meaningful life, at least according to Emily Espahani-Smith, is this idea or this pillar, this principle of belonging. And belonging is what we're talking about today, as you've heard um, shared from up front here. When you read through the early life of Moses, it'd be easy to assume um, that a sense of displacement and yearning for belonging played a significant role in his formation, particularly around his racial and ethnic identity. In fact, for years, this was how I read his story. Um, and while I'm not completely ready to throw out that interpretation, I had an encounter that really helped me to read this passage for today in a really different light. This past Tuesday, I happened to meet a woman, Meher, at the co-working space where I spend a lot of time. Now, she's Muslim, and we were talking about our religious traditions, which is what happens when you tell someone that you're a pastor. Um, and when I told her that I'd be preaching on the life of Moses over the next few weeks, she made a comment that sort of blew my mind. She told me that in the Islamic tradition, Moses' adoptive mother, Lady Asiya, as she's called, is one of the five most venerated women in Islam. Now, I'll be honest, I had actually never really thought all that much about Moses' adoptive mother. And the way the story is written in Exodus, I think that's actually sort of intentional. She's basically sort of like a background character, almost forgettable after that moment of her adoption on the riverbank. But in Islam, there is this whole story about and tradition about her. She's remembered as a deeply faithful woman, defiantly faithful, in fact, in spite of being uh, completely saturated in the pharaonic cult as a member of Pharaoh's household. She was a monotheist. And it was God's voice that she heard to take in this baby, baby Musa, restyled as Moses in the SES class of Ramses. 
royalty. And so in spite of their family religion, she raises Moses, presumably secretly, to recognize the one God. So there's this seed of resistance and relationship with God that Moses' adoptive mother instills within him. But there's something even more, and it was this realization that I hadn't quite absorbed before, but now feels really obvious. Lady Asiya, Moses' adoptive mother, wasn't just a woman who was devoted to the one God. She was someone who was deeply concerned with justice. How? Why else would she be hanging out at a riverbank where it was known that baby boys were just being set free to float down a river in baskets by these renegade midwives, right? What was happening to Moses being bundled up and set afloat wasn't unusual, but what was unusual was that he got picked up. Why else would she listen to that unknown voice to do something that would so obviously undermine the power and authority of her family? Why would she risk her status and her standing if she wasn't someone who was concerned about justice? And so, of course, she isn't just some nameless, faceless person in Moses' life. His adoptive mother is the very reason that Moses grew up so deeply passionate and concerned for justice and right being. She is the one who instilled within him a compass whose true north pointed in the direction of wholeness of life for all, not just wholeness of life for Egyptians. Surely his Hebrew phenotype, the shade of his complexion or the shape of his nose, his stature and his hair, those things couldn't help but manifest in his body as his DNA. But so was his accent and articulation, the gait of his stride and the posture with which he carried himself, an elite, pedigreed with the highest of education, familiar and comfortable in moving in those Egyptian spaces, even if he was an adopted one. All of this combined together in one person. And so here in our passage for this morning, we read about this defining moment when there is this perfect storm of who Moses is, right? Egyptian, Hebrew, justice seeker. And as he sees this encounter between the Egyptian and the Hebrew, what he sees is the power imbalance. Clearly, the Egyptian overseer has, has uh, no less, has more power than the Hebrew. And clearly, the Hebrew, um, the Hebrews have operated under oppressive labor practices and death-dealing legislation that have left them systematically disenfranchised and crippled by a legacy of genocide. So he intervenes, Moses intervenes on, behalf of the, on the Hebrews' behalf and accidentally kills this Egyptian. He knows um, that he needs what he needs to do in order to protect himself in this system because he um, is very comfortable moving within it. He knows that no one has seen because it was the time of the day when people were resting other than the person that he defended. And so Moses disposes of the body. Now, Muslim tradition says that Moses makes peace with God about this, but our scripture makes no statement either way about this. What we do both agree on is that he tried to cover it up. But then he comes across this second event where two Hebrews are fighting each other. And maybe he's starting to kind of like, you know, find himself identifying with the people of his DNA. So Moses intervenes again. Brothers, he says, why fight one another? We don't need this Hebrew on Hebrew violence. There aren't enough of us around to begin with, right? But the feeling isn't mutual, and Moses is reminded of just who he isn't. More than that, he realized his secret is no secret. And in the midst of rejection, shame, and humiliation, with a warrant on his head, he runs. 
He runs all the way to Midian, a rural area far out of Pharaoh's jurisdiction. What is left of him? He's, he has betrayed his adoptive family. He has been rejected by the people of his birth. Who is Musa or Moshe in the Hebrew? No longer Moses, at least in the formal sense, right? Who am I? Where do I belong? There, at an oasis in the desert, as he's sorting out his identity, it comes to him before he actually even realizes it. These two young women attempting to water their flock find themselves harassed and threatened by two male shepherds, and without hesitation, he intervenes again. And here, I think here is where we see Musa, Moshe, Moses' truest, deepest identity emerge. The identity deliberately, lovingly, hopefully planted within him by the courageous woman of conviction who raised him. It's an identity not divorced from his pedigree, his profile, and his parentage, but alone on it, standing alone on itself, too. In a world that so often organizes itself by tribe and tongue, where does a person like Moses find a home? Where do people who found themselves living in in-between spaces or in-between identities who have grown up in communities or cultures or churches whose deepest convictions end up leading them to experience a kind of spiritual or even intellectual homelessness. Where do they go? Now, as we all know, we'll be celebrating the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, a man whose story feels maybe so familiar to us um, that perhaps it seems like there isn't much left to learn about it but I'll give it a try. <clears throat> Toward the end of his sudden death, Dr. King was starting to make a shift in his focus. Some of you might know. His deep convictions to see his people flourish revealed to him the interconnectedness of sin and evil. And so he began to turn his attention and sharp mind to other concerns, concerns about poverty, concerns about war, and the ways that these intersect with racism and serve to dehumanize us all. In a sermon he preached exactly one year before his death, he preached, I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme militarism, uh, materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. Now, many of Dr. King's friends and colleagues were not happy about this shift. They urged him to stick with civil rights. For some, it was strategic. Why divide your energy and risk muddling your message? For others, it was a deep passion and commitment to see a full push through to systemic change for African Americans. Some even threatened to oppose him publicly as he made this shift. But for Dr. King, as he went deeper into his values, as he faithfully followed the God that he loved and loved him, he knew it wasn't enough anymore, that he needed to name and expose the intersections of those interests as they worked to dismantle human flourishing and making, of course, no mistake, who often ends up landing at the bottom of those intersections, bearing the brunt of them. I wonder, no, I'm certain, I think, at times he felt isolated. Maybe there were times when Dr. King found himself sitting at the oasis in Midian, wondering whether there might be a place he could ever really belong. 
And maybe at each time he sat there and found himself there pondering, he found his identity revived once again in that deep seed, that soul urgency planted within him by by those who loved him and nurtured him in his own life to see justice roll down like waters, as the prophet Amos put it, and righteousness flowing like like an ever-flowing stream. Maybe as he followed that thread of conviction, Dr. King found himself making home and family in unlikely tents with unlikely characters who weren't always sure about his identity, but who could see very clear, with clarity and kinship the deepest beliefs that marked his character. Maybe Dr. King never really felt at home anywhere. After all, building beloved community means holding diverse truths in tension with one another. And when you do that, there is hardly room for your truth. But I suspect he committed himself to the project because he couldn't not pursue it. Because in spite of its messiness and pain, it was the pathway vision that God gave him toward wholeness of life for all. His vision and his sense of call was very specifically rooted in his people, his identity, the lived experience that he had. But then it began to blossom out as he went deeper into his values. And maybe it was in the cacophony of competing voices that were bound by a common love that Dr. King was able to find a home for himself. Now, throughout my time at Urban Village, I've heard many folks say something along the lines of, this was my last chance church. And they discover a community where they finally belong. Now, many churches practice a pattern of belief that follows this, often follows this order, behave, believe, then belong. But at UBC, we try to reverse that order, that the first experience you have is one of belonging, and that that experience of belonging shapes your belief about who God is and how God moves. And, and if your history has been one, especially if your history has been one marked by exclusion, so after that, then that belief then begins to shape your behavior in the community. And so I hope that this has been, especially if your experience has been one of exclusion, that that order of belonging first has been your experience here. Whether this was your last chance church for you or not, so many folks have come to find a place, a people at UVC, where they feel like they can finally bring their whole self. But after a while, inevitably, they sometimes get frustrated because We don't all see or believe or behave in the ways that feel familiar or suitable or right. And it can be easy to lose sight that the essence of belonging at UBC, at Urban Village, is less about uniformity than it is about a continued commitment to see and seek one another's humanity. To struggle together as the body of Christ, bound by God's common love. Belonging is both an experience and a choice. At the end of this month, we'll be welcoming some folks into membership at UBC, among them uh, Lucille. Uh, For each one of them, there has been a profound sense of both belonging and a deep desire to commit more deeply, to magnify the experience of belonging they had for others, and to be part of God's broader project of belonging in this world. Whether you are ready or wanting to be a member of this community, know first and foremost that you belong that you belong. It may take some time to work it all out, how it looks or what it takes, but you belong. Ours is a community 
committed to creating space, especially for those who have been told that there is no space for them. It is a space for each one of us, though, who know what it's like to find ourselves at some point in our lives sitting in Midian, wondering who we are or whose we are or where we belong. And so no matter who you are, what you've done, or where you come from, know that you belong here. Come. Sit in our tent. Join our family. Adopt our purpose and know that you are welcome here, not for what you look like or for what you have to offer, but for who you are. Because that's what we experience first. And that's what God wants you to know, first and foremost, that who you are is all you need to be part of God's family. Pray this. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks that you say we belong and that not only do you say it, you show it. Help us to be the kind of people who show your belonging to one another, who remind one another that there is a place for them, and help us as we try to live that out, as we try to embody that, to struggle together and to make that commitment to live that out, even if it is sometimes uncomfortable or difficult or frustrating. Help us to be people who model your commitment to us, to one another, so that this world might know what it means to be beloved community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.